0: Welcome to Opening Doors, a podcast about accessibility in arts and civic life, brought to you by the Seattle Cultural Accessibility Consortium and Straw Cultural Center. For our first season, we aim to amplify the voices of Black, Indigenous, and people of color with disabilities, and to learn how race and disability impact their access to arts and culture. Here's your host, Elizabeth Ralston, founder of the Seattle Cultural Accessibility Consortium,
1: Hello, I am here with Kameiko Thomas today. Kameiko Thomas is a writer, founder of Bonum Creative Media, and a disabled black woman veteran who understands the unique relationship between storytelling and healing. She believed that hiding the truth of one's mental health journey in a misguided attempt to shield others from its impact actually causes more harm not only to the person dealing with the mental health concern, but to those around them. Recently, Ms. Thomas has shared the details of her journey through storytelling panel and lecture events with UDoc Medicine, the Institute for Sustainable Diversity and Inclusion, and the 2020 Artists of Color Expo and Symposium. She has helped audiences learn about the realities of invisible disabilities for Black women, how art and creativity help in the healing of trauma, and how to recognize the biases and stereotypes that falsely center themselves in narratives that aren't theirs. Ms. Thomas has a B.A. in English from Wiley College, an M.A. in English and Creative Writing from Southern New Hampshire University, and describes herself as a Black woman living and working at the intersections of race, gender, and invisible disability in this case, post-traumatic stress disorder known as PTSD. Welcome, Kameiko. Hi. (laughs) Thank you. Great to see you. Thank you. Great to see you, too. Now, to kick things off, I'd love for our listeners to understand what it means to have an invisible disability. So can you share what it means to have an invisible disability? For
2: me, having an invisible disability, it's multi-layered in the fact that we do live in a very ableist society. And I feel that the, the, the number one thing when you have an invisible disability is of course the automatic assumption that there's nothing wrong with you, right? So then when the conversation comes up and, and, and this has happened to me so many times before where I say, well, I'm actually a disabled veteran and I'll, you know I'll get these incredulous looks like, oh really? And then the next one is, oh, you don't look disabled. And then I have to say, okay, well, what does is, what is someone with a disability look like to you? Like, what does disabled look like to you that you really do believe that it has a look? And if it doesn't look the way you think it's supposed to look, then, then the automatic assumption is, well, it must not be as bad as you're making it out to be or you know, or or I don't know. Are you really disabled? Because you know, like you're not ticking off any of my boxes. Uh, so, so to have an invisible disability is a is a struggle and a fight in itself. Because you know, there's a way that people are treated when you see that they need wheelchairs, or when you see that they need walkers, or when you see someone on crutches, or even in a cast. Like there are certain things that automatically happen because they have those visual cues. But when you don't have the visual cues, it becomes a completely different issue, and um, I deal with that like like every day. It's it's actually kind of exhausting. But
1: I can totally relate to that because as a person with a hearing loss, I also have an invisible disability, and so when people find out that I'm deaf, they're like, "What? You speak so well for a deaf person." <laughs> So, I totally get where you're coming from. And, um, you know, I actually looked up what invisible disability means. And um, according to the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA, an individual with a disability is a person who has a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities, has a record of such an impairment. Or is regarded as having such an impairment. Now, furthermore, a person is considered to have a disability if he or she has difficulty performing certain functions like seeing, hearing, talking, or walking, etc., or yeah. has difficulty performing activities of daily living, or has difficulty with certain social roles. So when you consider that one in five Americans has a disability, it's so easy to see how incredibly difficult it is to make invisible disabilities more apparent and critical to helping so many people who are overlooked, but also it's so daunting in the scope. Yeah, And you can continue to think about it as um, having symptoms such as debilitating pain, fatigue, dizziness, cognitive dysfunctions, vision impairments. I mean, these are not always obvious to yeah. the onlooker. So can you tell me a little bit more about your day-to-day life experience, how your invisible disability has provided a challenge that you or others around you hadn't anticipated? How, how do you handle that?
2: Well having dealt with this for 22 years now. So we're basically talking about my whole adult life. So now, unfortunately I will never know what it is like to be an autonomous adult and not have to deal with, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. Like, so, so that, that ability, that experience is totally closed off to me. So it, it makes me sad when I, if I think about it too much, it makes me a little sad. But the, the the challenge that I face, um, and again, this is just after 22 years of trial and error, is is learning what my max is, learning um, when I have days that I that I really just can't do a whole lot of anything, and not wanting to overcompensate for my disability because I used to do that a lot. I used to do a lot of things in spite of PTSD. So I used to, I I would often fight against it instead of working with it. Um, And and I would end up crashing all the time. So what I've had to learn how to do, um, again, trial and error, because this isn't anything that would be obvious to anyone else. What I had to learn how to do is pay attention to my energy, uh, pay attention to my moods, Um, be mindful of the traumas that I knew about and also be mindful if something happened and I ended up being triggered. And the thing about the triggers are, there are some that I absolutely know about um, and, and there are others. I don't know that they're triggers until I'm having a response. And there have been times where I've been in public and I've seen something or I heard something and then I'm having a panic attack. And, you know, then I have to, then I go into fight or flight mode. I try to find some place or somewhere to go where I can feel safe and kind of get back to center. And, you know, I've got all these people around me. And I think to the, you know, to the untrained eye, I just look like I'm having a fit or something. But for me, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm in the throes of something right now and I need to figure out what I need to do to be safe and to, you know, maintain some sense of equilibrium. It's, uh, it's also difficult because um, PTSD is very, very mentally taxing and it ends up being physically exhausting. So I, um, um, I said this once at the, actually at the Institute for Invisible Disabilities, I, I said this. I said, there are days, I said, my max on a good day, my battery meter is at 50%. That means that you know, if I if if the insomnia wasn't bad, uh, <laughs> you know, if I was able to get decent sleep, if, like with all of the conditions, okay, the max like the best I'm at is fifty percent, and I have to do with fifty what other people you know can do with a hundred or should be able to do with a hundred should be, and again, that's on a good day. Sometimes, really. I'm averaging really more like between twenty-five and thirty percent. Fifty is like my ideal. I don't always hit that,
1: and it becomes even more exhausting. I would think when you have to deal with um, the ableist society's perspectives or perceptions of people with disabilities, especially people of color. So that leads me to my next question: Is what made you decide to speak more publicly about being a black woman with PTSD considering all that? There were a few things that made me
2: decide to speak out. Um, the first was I I personally get tired of of other people telling me what, you know, like like they, they want performative disability. They want something that that fits this narrative that that you know Hollywood has put out about post-traumatic stress disorder, even though that narrative overwhelmingly centers white men and is always tied to something extremely violent and, and unbelievably irrational. And it's like, okay, honestly, for PTSD sufferers, most of us are more of a danger to ourselves than we could ever possibly be to other people because there's a high ideation for suicide that comes with that. Uh, so, So that's part of it. And I got tired of of that. And then it's the, the, the other part of it, too, is I got tired of, you know, as a black woman being told how resilient I was always supposed to be. Uh, uh, you know, when dealing with, you know, when dealing with a challenge is what, you know, it was like, well, you know, your ancestors were slaves and if they could deal with that, then you can deal with this or, or my favorite one, mental health issues are for white people, which is probably the most ignorant thing <laughs> I think anyone can say mm-hmm. to someone that's dealing with their trauma or the fact that um, so many of, you know, because PTSD is a mood disorder, then it then it stops being PTSD and then it starts being, oh, I'm a Black woman, so I just have an attitude. I'm upset about everything all the time. And those things are very damaging because I look at it this way too, and, and I see this as a responsibility. I've, I've even said this to say, you're going to say that to someone and then the next thing you know, they're going to go and eat a bullet. Because they're going to start feeling, you know, hopeless, like nobody cares and no one understands or, you know, they're going to, you know, because it's unintentional gaslighting. And I felt like if I don't get out and start speaking on this, then, you know, the next person might not be so lucky. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. so yeah so it, it's it's hard it's like these conversations are never easy but they are a hundred percent necessary which is why I do it
1: well I so admire you for speaking up about this issue because I think this is an issue that doesn't get very much attention and I think it's really important to um, explain as honestly and candidly as one possibly can about how this affects one's own being in everyday life. And you have listed a bunch of stereotypes and biases that come into play. Um, Tell me more about the race and gender piece. You know, we talk often about intersectionality and how that plays a big role in how um, people with disabilities are able to access arts, for example, and civic life. So Mm -hmm. tell me more about that.
2: Well, uh, you know, as I said before, you know, from the racial perspective, it's I have an attitude because I'm a black woman. Like, I just want to be mad about everything all the time. Like, I just, you know, I, I want to feel like I'm always being persecuted, like I'm always being victimized because that's where I'm the most comfortable. And no, it's not. Because I personally don't like how vulnerable I feel when I walk out into the world, and that's without PTSD. So now with PTSD, so there's the vulnerability that I feel as a Black woman, and then there's the vulnerability that I feel as a Black woman with a mental health concern, because if I'm not catching it on the the race and gender end, I'm catching it on the disability end, because again... Not only is this an ableist society, it's a very racist and sexist one. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. I'm fighting a war on three fronts all the time. And it is exhausting. Like, like look, before the pandemic, there would be days if I you know, woke up and just knew that I was having a bad day, I wouldn't even leave, I wouldn't even leave my house. I'm like you know, like when I know that I feel like just the act of interacting with people is likely to trigger me, I stay home. Like these are the things that I have learned to do, but then I walk out, you know, I go out into the world and I look at the people who take for granted that they don't have to think about these things and and still feel comfortable putting their expectations on me and then wanting to persecute me for not living up to whatever ideal they have painted in their head. And it's really hard and it's very, very painful. You were talking about, you know, the accessibility in the arts uh, as as well. Well, there are a couple of things, because I I feel that just as as a Black person who appreciates the arts in all of its forms, I uh, actually, um, a friend of mine took me to a performance of the the Dance Theater of Harlem one birthday. It was like probably one of the greatest experiences that I ever had. Um, When the Seattle Art Museum had the Basquiat on display, like just being able to be in that environment was was wonderful. And Mm -hmm. the flip side of that is I, I walk into spaces like Seattle Art Museum, and I get these looks like I'm not supposed to be there, or I'm not supposed to know, you know, understand the significance of, of of so many of the works that are, you know, that are there. And and I'm like, well, why is why is there such a paternalistic attitude toward the arts? Like that should be for anyone that connects with the work, not. Well, you know, you're black, so you can't possibly really understand what any of this means. And it's like, OK, but Jacob Lawrence was black.
1: <laughs> was out,
2: was black. Like, mm-hmm. where, like, what are you talking? So it's OK for you to essentially colonize works by, you know, prominent African-American artists, but African-Americans themselves can't and, you know, just can't even know it exists, it's, you know, that's extremely frustrating. And and then, you know, that's the one part. Then the other part of it is as a writer and as a nonfiction writer, as a disabled nonfiction writer, I feel that there, there are no opportunities for people like me. I see, I see the same people get the same money all the time and and I've I actually feel that I've been locked out of some opportunities because I've been so forthright about having PTSD. I feel like I feel like it's one of those things that people want to understand or they they want to create the impression that they understand but when they're actually faced with it it's it's too much for them so they so they kind of back off. it's like it's a responsibility that they don't want to have. It's like I'm not asking you to be responsible for my narrative because you don't know my narrative. I would never center you in my narrative because you wouldn't know what to do with it anyway. I'm responsible for my narrative. I need an opportunity to be able to to share it in a way where it's safe and I don't feel like I'm encroaching upon, you know, you know, earmarked territory so to speak.
1: You have such a rich story to tell, and it makes me sad that um, that's not appreciated. And I think one of the things that we need to work harder as a society is to be more welcoming and inclusive of all people with disabilities, especially BIPOC with disabilities, right? Mm -hmm. And you have just touched on um, an essential part of what that welcoming and inclusion could look like. So I'm all about thinking about, well, how can we educate other people in making their spaces and their events and their programs more welcoming and inclusive? What would it look like if you had the perfect experience accessing any kind of arts program?
2: I will say this, um, when I spoke about um, seeing the the Jacob Lawrence um, migration series, the full migration series, I wasn't going to miss that. Um, but what I noticed was that it was pretty much standing room only. So if you had mobility issues, if, if you had, you know, some sort of spinal injury, that would have been a very painful experience for you because, you know, it, it was a line that stretched around. But it was a line, so if you started to feel fatigued or or whatever, that was going to be a bit much. Now, if you factor in, you know, uh, you know, for you know, in my case, having PTSD and sometimes a huge crowd of people like that that I don't know triggers my anxiety. So I had to, (laughs) so I had to work really hard not to freak out because I was in an environment I was surrounded by people I didn't know and they were, well this is obviously way before social distancing. they were way too close to me. So I you know so I'll mm-hmm. be like why are you so close? you know So I feel that honestly the first part is there should be uh, you know whether or not people will agree with me when I say this, I think that there should be uh, uh, times, is spaces earmarked for okay, look this today is the day where this is we're opening the floor for people with disabilities invisible and visible mm-hmm. like, like this is their day. like you 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 able folks however you are able like like the, the, the rest of the world is yours like almost all the time let the disabled have this space and this time for this day. So I think that's that's one way to do it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I yeah. love it. I love that. I think that is absolutely essential, especially um, when you talk about having to stand so much of um, attending arts performances or um yeah. Exhibit, you have to stand and wait Or really
2: or no, no spaces to sit. And, right. and after a while, uh, uh, because I, I also um, have an injury from a car accident. So sometimes I can't be standing for like, you know, period, like unending periods of time, you know, because like, you know, my pain will flare up. And then if there's nowhere to sit, then... Yeah. I'm forced to leave a lot sooner than mm-hmm. I had planned because I'm not comfortable and there's nowhere for me to go where I can where I can be comfortable. And I don't I don't think that that's anything that anyone does intentionally, but it it, it the impact is still the same. Like I still feel like nothing is being done to make sure that I can also be comfortable in a space. And I think that people feel like when you're asking for accommodations, you are asking for quote unquote Royal treatment, you know, as a, you know, like, you know, it's, and and it's like, no, because same, like, okay, if you went to a restaurant and you ordered a steak, well done, and they brought it to you raw, no one would accuse you of wanting special treatment because you want to get what you paid for. You know, so, so there's that, and I also think the, a, a part of it, too, I noticed that there are a lot of people in the, in the disability, uh, well, diversity and inclusion space. It doesn't really include disabilities, but I noticed that there are a lot of people in the DEI space that aren't really very diverse, and I feel that the opinions of people like me, like no one ever asks me. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, right. all, it, it's always like able people who don't really understand it that are being given the space mm-hmm. to speak on behalf of people like me. And I think that that's highly problematic. So, so the solutions such as they are, are still suited for people who will never have that experience and will never know what that's like. And I think that, you know, I, I think that bringing us in mm-hmm. to consult and be like, okay, well, we want to do this What's the best way for us to do that in a way that is, that is inclusive to you? Because everybody else, they already have what they need. <laughs> so why are you being overly concerned about how people who are going to be able to access it whenever they want to be able to access it, why are you so concerned about how they feel, especially when they're the majority of the population? Like what you said, one in five, that's 20%. So that means that 80% of the people don't need it. And I feel like the 20% is always being forced to consider the perspectives and the needs of the 80%. You know, in any other circumstance that would be considered grossly unfair. So why is it that in, in this instance, there are all these aspersions? Like there was actually a woman who asked us at a panel on invisible disabilities, how do we know you are not faking? Yes. (laughs)
1: Yes. <laughs> um, you know what, Kamiko? you have just touched on so many amazing and important issues and I think part of the problem is that there's so many generalizations that um, there's so many different needs within the population of disabled people. So it's not a cookie cutter approach. Really? You have to meet the person where they are at. You have to meet the person where they are. And yeah. I think
2: The first part of it, too, is uh, like, uh, you know, the talk that I gave at ACES earlier this year. There are people who they didn't understand the concept of an invisible disability like that was (laughs) that was new to them. Like invisible disabilities. So there were people there who had to be educated on what it meant to have an invisible disability. Like you would think that invisible would kind of be like the keyword, like, okay, we're talking about disabilities that are present, but you can't, you know, but they're not, they're not immediately recognizable. But no, that they, they had to be educated on that. Then they had to be educated on post-traumatic stress disorder. Then they had to be educated on I even had a part where I said, How many of you in the audience have called someone that you knew had mental health concerns crazy because you were mad at them? And and there were there was like one guy, he was sitting in the front and he and he he did his hand like this. <laughs> and and I said I said you guys have to stop that because what you're when you do that it's very damaging because it's already hard to process that and then when someone is vulnerable enough to trust you with that kind of insight into themselves and you throw that back at them not only do they feel foolish for trusting you now you have re-traumatized them and you have made them a stigma when they already understand the stigma that surrounds mental health. And that stigma is double if you're black because of the, you know, the the stigma of of getting help for mental health concerns in the black community. Then I'm a black woman. So then it becomes how much of this is PTSD versus I'm just an angry black woman. And it's like, Mm. You know, it's like, well, I get to be angry because you're walking around trying to gaslight me about my own experience. And it's not your narrative to center yourself in.
1: Kameko, I have learned so much from you. And I really appreciate you taking the time to share um, that amazing story and very important story. And yeah. I would like to close by having you share a little bit about Mm-hmm. embarking on your journey of healing because I think this would be a great place for us to understand um, what that looks like and what that looks like for you especially
2: My healing journey it, it was it was a bit of a process because for about 15 of those 22 years, I wouldn't even consider the possibility that I had any kind of mental health concern. I remember the first time I was told, yeah, you, you sound like you have PTSD. And I was like, hmm. Like even when I filed my disability claim for PTSD, I was still in denial. Like I, I felt like I was lying about it because that's how much in denial I was. And it took me 15 years to even say to myself, yeah, this is PTSD. And then it took more time for me to say, well, I can't expect people to to deal with me based on information I know they don't have. So I had to first learn how to get comfortable with that for myself, which took a lot. And then after I did that, okay, well, what's the next step? It's like you know what, I might actually want to, uh, you know, start going to therapy because sometimes I kind of I kind of go there with people without meaning to because I'm I'm constantly being triggered and re-injured and I don't know how to process that. So that was so that was the other part, um, and and the third part. What has really been helpful is you know forums like this where I get to say, hey, look. There is nothing wrong with me as a human being for having a challenge. I am not less valuable because you have decided that what's going on with me makes me damaged. That's not your call to make. I still have things to contribute to the world. I have to be mindful of how I do that. Now, there are a lot of things that I have to consider that you don't have to consider, but it doesn't make me less valuable. It doesn't mean that I get to be ignored and that what I have, you know, what I have to say gets to be discredited. And, and I'm not going to let Mm -hmm. able people and people who don't know what this is like, tell me or the rest of the world, what this is supposed to look like. I'm I'm not gonna do that anymore. So speaking up and claiming it, like naming it and claiming it has, has been probably one of the most empowering things about this journey. But as I said, it it took it took almost 20 years to get here though. <laughs> so that was it took a it took a long time because I had to get past my my racial pride, my racial identity, my identity as a strong black woman you know all that nonsense like it was a lot of stuff that i had to clear out just to get to a kameko space where it's like all of these things are me not just the little parts that everyone can deal with like all of this stuff is me and and i even like tell people when i when i meet them this is who i am and and this is the stuff that I'm dealing with. And that might be too much for you. And if it is, I can totally respect that. But if it is too much for you, you need to go now because you're not going to sit here and expect me to hide things so you can be comfortable. Cause I tried that and it made things worse. So I'm not doing that anymore. So, I mean, some people, you know they've been able to hang on and, and others have fallen off. And <laughs> I'm like, okay if you can't do it, you can't do it, but it's not harder for you than it is for me. So I'm not going to, you know, sit here and be concerned about, well, this so-called person with no issues and most, and more, and there are people who have more mental health issues than they think. So like this so-called person who just believes he's totally normal is saying that, you know, I'm too much for him. So, well, if I am, if dealing with me and and me holistically is too much for you, then the only thing that you can do is exit stage left. And I'm okay with that. (laughs) Like I had to get to that point where I could say that and, and mean it and know that that was true for me. And that took a lot of work. And while all this is going on, I'm raising a child solo and and dealing, Mm. you know, the single parent thing and, Mm. and, and trying to find, Uh, ways to give my life meaning because like a, a nine to five is just not going to work for me because of all of the challenges that I have so I've had to put in a lot of work to get here so when when other people feel that they can just jump in and start telling me what that looks like when I know the pain of that journey it does make me angry and that was the other reason I decided to start speaking out about it like you guys need to be quiet Because you really don't know what you're talking about. And you really are the quintessential, uh, (laughs) like the quintessence of ignorance here. And and what you're doing isn't just ignorant, it's dangerous. And it's very Mm. irresponsible. And I feel like I'm at a point where it would be equally irresponsible of me to see that and not do anything about it.
1: Thank you so much, Kameiko, for those amazing, wise words. And I cannot wait to read your writing. Um, I've read some of it, and I cannot wait to see what else you produce. And I would imagine that all of this, as hard as it is, as hard as it is to be vulnerable, in some way is freeing. So thank you so much for for sharing your very personal story. I'm very humbled to have spent this time with you. And thank you so much for your time and energy in speaking up.
2: Thank you for the opportunity, like really, really, to use this platform to give a voice to people who typically don't have voices. I think that is so amazing. So thank you so much for doing this because we need more forums like these. Absolutely. So thank you for that.
1: Really. Thank you so much.
0: Opening Doors is produced by the Seattle Cultural Accessibility Consortium and Jack Straw Cultural Center. This podcast was made possible by the Awesome Foundation, Seattle Office of Arts and Culture and individual contributors with in-kind support from Jack Straw Cultural Center, Sound Theatre Company, Jennifer Rice Communications, and the SCAC Steering Committee. Music performed by William Chapman Nyaho, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The mission of the Seattle Cultural Accessibility Consortium is to connect arts and cultural organizations with the information and resources to improve accessibility for people of all abilities. SCAC's fiscal sponsor is Shunpike. To learn more, go to seattlecac.org. Jack Straw Cultural Center, producer of the Blind Youth Audio Project since 1997, is committed to keeping art, culture, and heritage vital through sound. You can learn more at jackstraw.org. Join us for our next episode, featuring an interview with Troy Coleman a passionate leader, fundraiser, and tireless advocate for the disabled community.
2: The same cultural attributes that exist to create racism exist for someone who can't see. And so we have to break down those walls and we have to break down those barriers that may exist, whether they have to do with language, whether they have to do with behavior, whether they have to do with access. They don't work separately. They work hand in hand.
0: Hear the whole interview on the next episode of Opening Doors, available at soundcloud.com openingdoorspod and wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.